Mitchells. Your mother's books about the Mitchells very, right. very closely parallel your life, right? Totally autobiographical about <laughs> her family. And see, people want to know who is the protagonist. It is the family. It's about <laughs> the family trying to get along in a world that is sometimes inconvenient, sometimes hostile, and many times friendly. Hello, you are listening to the Plumfield Moms, and this is Wednesday's Plumfield in Person. Hi, I'm Diane Pendergraft, and I'm here today with Sarah Mustarek, as is our want. We have a really special guest today, and Sarah is going to tell us more about him. Diane, I know I say this all the time. But I am always really excited about our guests. Obviously, mm-hmm. we have a practice of inviting on people we really like. It's easy to be excited um, coming to work every day and introducing our guests. Today, we had such a wonderful conversation with John Tepper Marlin, the son of Hilda von Stockholm. But we didn't have a chance to actually open it up with a formal intro. So I just wanted to welcome all of our listeners and to explain that John Tepper Marlin's mother, Hilda von Stockholm, is one of my most favorite children's authors. And this conversation is one that was many weeks in the making. And I had so much fun preparing for it because I got to revisit a lot of Hilda books I love. And so with that, we welcome you into our conversation and we're just going to dive right into it and uh, talk to John about his mother, Hilda. I went to boarding school at Kyle Morabi. I lived in Ireland for three years. Did you? Where did you live? I went to Black Rock College. Oh, marvelous! Rock boys are we. Our title is our glory. Fearless <laughs> and bold, whatever the dangers be, onward we go to flinch or falter never. Rock boys together, the blue and white forever. <laughs> That's marvelous. Well we're done. Always, we're always in the rugby finals. Anyway, I was um, their Holy Ghost fathers. Kyle Moore were Benedictine nuns. Benedictines. Well, I went to for six years to a Benedictine monastic schools. I went for three years to Ampleforth College in Yorkshire. Okay. For three years to Portsmouth Abbey School. When were you in Ireland? Why were you in Ireland? Why were we in Ireland? My mother had a her seventh child and it was stillborn. Ah. Uh, Very sad. And she yeah. uh, was as close as she ever was to a nervous breakdown mm-hmm. because at the same time her mother died. Oh. She lost her mother. She'd already lost her two brothers right. from the war. And uh she was living in Montreal, which she didn't like because it had taken her mother's life because she slipped on the ice on a hill oh. and broke her hip. And in mm-hmm. those days, you break your hip, you know, you're it's, basically, it's a death sentence. Right. Uh, now that's all different. But my mother said to my father, I don't want to live in Montreal anymore. I am at my wit's end. So he said... I work for the United Nations. You can go anywhere you want. So they decided on Ireland because my mother 
you know, had such strong Irish connections. And for us, the transition would not be as difficult as it would be if she had gone to Holland, which okay. was her other great love in Europe. So we went to Ireland and then we went to Paris. Uh, wow. I went to school in England for three years. So you mm -hmm. can, it's one, one in Ireland and three in, in England at Ampleforth. And uh, then we went back because my father wanted us to be Americans. But it was too late because <laughs> three of my sisters got married in, in England. And right. my, yeah, and my fourth, my eldest sister went for her certificate in education at UCD, University College Dublin, and uh, was sort of committed to a lifetime of teaching in less developed countries, which is what she did, what she's still doing. Born in 34, she'll be 90 in two years. Is she still in Africa? She's in Kenya, in Africa. In Kenya. Been there since before independence, the European teachers were going west, and mm -hmm. the very small number of people, like my sister, were coming east to replace mm -hmm. them. And then we went back to the United States, eventually lived in Washington. So your mother's books about the Mitchells very, right. very closely parallel your life, right? Totally autobiographical about <laughs> her family. And see, people want to know who is the protagonist it is the family. It's about the family trying to get along in a world that is sometimes inconvenient, sometimes hostile, and many times friendly. Right. I love the Mitchells. They are not my first Hilda von Stockholm book. My first Hilda von Stockholm book is The Winged Watchman. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, but tell us, who is who in the Mitchells, if you will? Well, five of us are still alive. Mm -hmm. Um in, in order, Olga is Joan, mm -hmm. Bridget is pa Patsy, mm -hmm. Randall is Peter, mm -hmm. uh, Sheila is Angela, mm -hmm. and I am the youngest in the Mitchells, but there's a one coming along after me right. in 1945 who was in the two Canadian books, mm -hmm. and that's Catherine. In books, I think she has twins, right? She They're does. Two. In, in, yes, at the beginning of the third one. She wanted seven children. She oh. got six. Okay. Uh, one of them was stillborn. Uh, but she made up for it by creating two of them. In the Friendly Gables, the third book, she names one of the twins John. Oh, I didn't have <laughs> forgot that. <laughs> so even though you are Timmy, <laughs> you're the good news, Timmy. Um, looks like she got you in there twice. <laughs> he gave a name to the stillborn child he was baptized and uh his name is gerard and there's a saint gerard and that's why and i right. i have a confession to make i don't know much about saint gerard <laughs> he is the patron saint of difficult pregnancies and oh. infertility and uh, very often he's invoked when there's danger of loss of the pregnancy. So that would make a lot of sense. <laughs> Thank you for that. It, wasn't, it was not infertility. No. It was, it was a difficult pregnancy. And she could not have children after that uh -huh. uh, because of the difficulty in the operation. Sure. And that's what sort of contributed to what she considered the low point of her life. When mm -hmm. we went back to Montreal 
after uh, Europe, because my father was still working for the UN uh, in Montreal. When we went back there, uh, she, she insisted we be on level ground, because Montreal is Montreal, Royal Mountain. <laughs> right. And it's on a hill, but there is a little bit of space at the bottom where you have flat land, and that's where she insisted we go. No more falling on, on no ice. No more walking uphill. But then when they moved to England, he wanted to live on the hill again. He's sort of looking at the view. And that only lasted a couple of years. And she said, sell this house. And they moved once again to the bottom of a hill. Although she said at the time she was walking up the hill, she was used to say, I'm sharing in the, the suffering of Jesus. So she, she, she had a way of coping with any adversity. She was an amazing woman. <laughs> That's just beautiful. So when did she write the Irish trilogy? Yeah. Was that before or after you guys were in Ireland? It was definitely before. She had some many Irish friends. She had a you should have seen. I have a picture actually of where she used to pray. Mm -hmm. And it's littered the wall is littered with pictures of all the people she prayed for. I think there must have been a hundred or a hundred and fifty. What a beautiful idea. I'm totally inspired. <laughs> yeah, anyway, so she had this little shrine where she had a few uh, a few, few statues and a cross, and she would pray, uh, and she would pray for all these people, and she would look and remind herself of who they all were by looking at their photographs. So one of the people who was her friend from Ireland who left Ireland and came to Canada, and she welcomed them, and uh, they sort of worked around the house. She had six children, and she was eager to get help. And one of them was Nora, and she would tell my mother all these stories. <laughs> and, uh, she was always nostalgic for the past and the way that uh, some people stayed at home and that they yes. talked with one another. And they, uh, you know, the labor-saving devices you know, were got in the way of, of talking about mm -hmm. housework, which was something that the mother of the house used to do. Anyway, Nora came in, helped around the house. She heard all these stories, and she would write them down. Mm -hmm. and she made them into books. The Irish books got her in the habit of writing about children, for children. So they were very important. The Irish books were very important. And, and they were a huge success. And they're hilarious. I yeah. mean, Pegine is one of the funniest books I've ever read. Don't forget Francie. That's oh, uh, yeah, he's hilarious. <laughs> anyway, my mother got some criticism from her Irish friends. They said, you know, this is, uh, we have a lot more going on than you're giving us credit for. We have, we are becoming very modern. And so she went back to her editor and said, you know, maybe I should, show with the more modern Ireland. And her editor said, no, no, <laughs> this is what you are recording in Ireland that may be disappearing, but it's the Ireland that people want to read about. It it's is. Real it is. Ireland. They don't want to know that they've got McDonald's now. They want to right. know, read about the old, old Ireland, Ireland, which will be gone, you know, soon enough. We visited Bantry Bay because of of the book. 
her mother and my mother went to Ireland when my my grandfather, who was a Navy naval sea captain, went to investigate the source of the Saranac River in um, the West Indies. Wow. So the Queen sent him on a special, special, he wrote a book about it. Wow. Of family members who write books. <laughs> you all you know, write books, don't you? All write books. <laughs> I don't know what we're going to do now. The books are going out of style. Oh, they're not going out of style. No? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> and books this forever. Yes, books forever. <laughs> so one of the storylines in the Mitchells in the first book is just the tragic storyline of your uncle going to fight yeah. and not coming home. Right. And well, this he in the book he comes home. Right. In the but book in he comes home. Life, he doesn't come home. He doesn't come home. And that's very. Uh, that's one of the things that contributed to my mother's stress after the war. Um, that was again a low point of her, her life because my grandmother died in '49, same year as Edna St. Vincent Millay, who was her aunt. So that is your mother's aunt. Yeah. Well, she's aunt by marriage because she married my my mother's uncle, Uncle Eugene, Eugene, her uncle Eugene, who had already married Inez Milholland, who was the, the woman on the horse who led the parade in 1913 that meant that nobody was there to meet President Wilson. There was, uh, the only people there to meet him was uh, the, the driver for President Taft, who was the outgoing uh -huh. president. And the reason was they were all at this parade that was led by my uh, great uncle's first wife. The first mm -hmm. marriage was to my mother. We put it to me. She said, my uncle's first marriage was to wild horses in a field. The second one was more like carer and mm -hmm. a, a brilliant uh, invalid. So you said your uncle was an RAF pilot during the war. Yes. And in The Winged Watchman, it opens essentially with an RAF pilot being shot down. Yeah. And the boys hide him in a barn. And it's a powerful scene. Yeah. Is that, do you think that's a little bit of your mom wishing that you, that her brother had been rescued? Well, she wrote the book in 1962. Okay. Long after the war. So what she was doing was putting together a rescue story that gives a, a role for two children uh, age 12 and 14. The point is they were willing to hide him from their own parents if right. they thought they should do that. And, and, uh, and it's a, a priest who advises them not, not to hide anything from their parents. Yes. Uh, that was good advice in this case. <laughs> but I think the, the, the idea of rescued pilots by resistance members in France was very well publicized. So he actually, no, no one could rescue him because the plane burned up. I met some people who actually were there on the day that my uncle was shot down because there was a monument unveiling in France in Laval. And I went to it who were there as children when the plane came down. And they said, that the plane was steered away from the house into the orchard. And they gave the pilots credit for that. So 
That was uh, a final act of courage. Heroism, really. Yeah. As I, I always wanted, whenever I hear the word hero, I wanted to say that none of the characters in that I am studying now, because I'm writing about that history of the occupation in Holland, none of the people who are involved want to be called heroes. And they objected to it when Queen Juliana on Radio Orange mm -hmm. uh, said they were heroes. Sure, they were heroes in the sense that they were doing things that were protecting, they were, they were fighting against an evil occupier, but they were only doing what they had to do. They, they, from their point of view, you couldn't be a Dutchman and not fight, or a Dutch woman, and not fight against uh, Hitler. Not fight against evil. Evil, right. Mm -hmm. And there was so you, they quickly discovered how evil he was. You know, there was a period initially when they were they played good guy at least for a non-Jews. Right. Uh, the Jews were subjected to all kinds of of uh, sanctions. They were fired from their jobs and so forth. But uh, that was not publicized because the uh, the German occupiers wouldn't uh, control the press and. Um, uh, so they, they, they didn't know everything right away. It gradually came out mm -hmm. that, uh, how bad, how evil they were. And, and I guess that's a part of the theme of the barred house is that right. it didn't take, you didn't have to be a genius to figure out that the occupiers were evil. And here she was, the daughter of two occupying an actress and an actor who are there to entertain the troops. And, you know, what does one do in that situation? It's all based on a true story, but the people involved are still alive. So uh, we're not supposed to say who they were. You know, the storyline with Yana and her parents is fascinating. When the story begins, you really feel a distrust of Yana's mother. You think that she is really going to be the problem. And it turns out that it's Yana's father who is kind of weak when it comes to moral issues. He is he believes that Hitler's policies are good, and Yana's mother actually silently objects. And that's an interesting that your mother developed that story so deftly. It's a, it, the story is very unexpected in lots of places, and I think it really shows the range of things that Germans had to wrestle with to know what was really happening and where they really stood. Did they stand with Hitler or against him? Yeah. And at what cost? Right. Well, I mean, uh, you could say the same thing about the Germans that you could say about the Dutch during the resistance, which is mm -hmm. most people put their heads down and sort of tried to get make their way from day to day. Right. Uh, and so the hunger winter at the very end was in some ways the worst part of the war. You know, the, the, the Dutch were neutral in World War One, and they expected to be neutral in World War Two because Hitler had promised them he would never invade their wonderful Dutch cousins. So what the Dutch did was to prepare for a problem, for, for a, a war where they would be threatened with things like famine. They were well prepared for that. They weren't well prepared for fighting. 
although they effectively deflected the German Wehrmacht uh, when they came through. They expected to get through very quickly, capture the Dutch Queen. It didn't happen. The Queen got away. They were stalled. They shot down lots of planes. The parachutists, when they came down, were not organized. They, you know, the, the army did a lot, but then Hitler pulled out his trump card. It's like the nuclear card today and started bombing Rotterdam, where my mother was born, to smithereens. It just flattened the city. And uh, what's happening in Ukraine is a very good example of what happened in Rotterdam. It's just there was nothing. It went right to the ground. And right. obviously that was horrible for my mother. But mo most of her family was in Amsterdam. Anyway, the queen decided to surrender rather than uh, test Hitler on his threat that the next city would be Utrecht, and the next city after that would be uh, Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. So you are writing a book about this, about the Dutch resistance, and about right. that. When we've talked before, you've said that this book is really it's a one family's experience with the war, one large extended family. Tell us about that book. I'm going to Holland next month in September. And I am going to visit many of my relatives, and I'm going to visit some archives. And um, there's a lot of interest in the book. I have a draft now. I'll have a, a good draft uh, by the end of the year. I know when we've discussed this, we've talked about how it would be wonderful for school families to be able to read The Winged Watchman in middle school. And then when the child is ready, read The Borrowed House. and. Right then have them in high school read your book because it, it's okay. definitely going to be darker and more mature, but it's going to be very alive and really right. help really help young readers understand the war from that perspective. Right. But I think you also mentioned that it would be good for parents to read it while reading The Winged Watchman and The Borrowed House with their little people. Right. Is that right? right? Absolutely. They can tell their children this uh, fictional story has got a lot of factual basis for it right is it based on real things yeah yeah and I, I think it's important that whether the people want to be called heroes or not our children need to understand that they became that by the choices they made because not all the dutch were heroes you know some of them were collaborators and so there are choices to be made mm -hmm. like we see with the character of Leindert in uh the winged watchman being right. a land watcher and selling out his family. Right. It's like Joseph Conrad's book, The Heart of Darkness. Mm. You're, when, you, when you get to meet Landert and you find out how he behaves, you are getting into the heart of darkness. You really are. Yeah. And, and what a beautiful contrast your mother does with Landert is he's very much wanting to be a young Nazi. He He wants to... Um, listen to the, the German officers and obey them and disobey their parents. And he is being estranged from his family and his culture and his tradition versus yeah. the, the young boys when they rescue the pilot and they hide him away and they don't tell their parents. Like you said, they go to the priest and the priest says, trust your parents, go home, trust your parents, let them help you. Yeah. But then you see that now. John, I've only read the one, The Borrowed House so far, so that's part of the reason I'm so quiet. But 
you see that also in that book with Yana is that she's on her way mm-hmm. to being formed into someone who could betray her parents mm-hmm. and she somehow sees what's wrong there before it's too late so again choices and you know she sees people around her making the wrong ones and somehow that doesn't ring true to her the issues that my mother has explored in the two books are still very powerful and i'm in such admiration of of her for showing what what the underlying choices were that people had to make you know, most people just tried to get along. Right. You know, the, the act of collaboration. Mm. Uh, for example, there was a conductor who kept conducting his orchestra uh, during the war, even though some people felt that it was too normal. They, they, the war with this occupation was terrible and they should not be business as usual. But, you know, he was meanwhile trying helping all kinds of musicians who were uh, the, who were on the hit list for the Nazis and to be killed and to be deported and then killed, you have to look at the whole picture uh, when you're judging uh, the people who collaborated or who were just continued to do their job. I had a cousin uh, and I asked her whether she was part of the resistance and her answer to me was, as we were walking through Amsterdam, she pointed at a, a, a courtyard. There was an entrance to a, a courtyard. She said, I witnessed the shooting of 30 young men, some of whom I knew, uh, because one person had pushed a soldier into the canal and he had drowned because he had all this equipment on him and he couldn't swim. And the Nazis uh, retaliated by rounding up 30 young men, didn't care as long as they were not, didn't have any Nazi credentials. They lined them up and they had a public execution. She said that tended to make people kind of nervous about, uh, you know, being very visibly active. It makes it clearer why we call the ones who were active in the resistance, heroes. Right. Because they uh, did what they called their duty in the face of an occupying force that did not want them to do what they were doing, which is hiding Jews or hiding the young men who are supposed to be reporting for work or for the German army. So... You know, that's why we call them heroes, is that they didn't have to do what they did. But in their mind, they did have to do it because right. they were, it was like a, a, a war of good against evil. And as far as they were concerned, they had no choice. Uh, but, you know, they, they did have a choice. And I don't, I don't mind them being called heroes mm-hmm. just so long as you know that they didn't want to be called. Right. <laughs> well, I think one of the things that's really fascinating about Winged Watchmen and Borrowed House is you see how little choices snowball into big choices. Right. And so the family and the Winged Watchmen were not overtly resistance members in the beginning, although one of the uncles was, but the family itself was not. But when the Jewish families were putting their babies in the garden, 
in the hopes that the family would pick up and, and they weren't the only ones in the hopes that the villagers would pick up these babies and claim them as their own. But that's a small choice that the family made to hide and lie about the Jewish origins of these children. Mm-hmm. And it, it ended up having a positive snowballing effect. Yeah. And, and we see in the borrowed house, the opposite, the, the small choices to go along with the Baron or to, to go along with the Germans how easily you can lose your way. And right. so I think, uh, like you said, they, they might not have wanted to be a part of the resistance, but found themselves faced with impossible. Like, what was Yana going to do? Turn in Seth? Was she just not going? Was she just going to let this boy be known and killed? No. But in the minute she made the decision not to turn him in, she became a collaborator for the right side, for the good right. She became an anti-collaborator. Right. <laughs> and, and one of the things about that makes them heroes is that like with the men who were lined up to be shot and everybody witnessed that, they absolutely knew the consequences of what they were doing and they did it anyway. It's not that they weren't quite sure what was going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> so can you tell us about, and I never say the name right, the African book? It's called Mogo's Flute when... Viking produced it. Uh, my mother made a mistake, and unfortunately, it's in the title. Uh, call him a Mogo, but he's really Mugo, Mugo's flute. So it's just the switching of the vowels? Yeah, just that one switching of the vowel makes it non authentic to the Kenyans. Okay. Except everything else is authentic. Young Kikuyu tribesman who is a brilliant player of the flute. Mm. and has a, has him on the cover, but it's actually more like a Senegalese African, more West African, uh, because it's done by a French illustrator who uh, must have known Senegalese, the Senegalese culture. Mm. Uh, but the uh, Kenyans tend to be more stocky, and they realize that this art was not appropriate. So there are two kinds of problems with that book. One is the art, the other is just the name. Uh, but they loved the book. Otherwise, the Kenyans loved it. Your mother captured the spirit, right? She did capture spirit. And the illustration, did you say your mother had illustrated it? Publisher wanted to sell Mugo's flute to people who, looking at a new generation of African Americans and mm-hmm. what would be, what they would aspire to look like. I would love to have an edition of that book that used some of my mother's artwork. It doesn't have to be the artwork that she did for the book, but she has so much art she did while she was there visiting my sister, who Mm -hmm. was, she made many visits to her because uh, she made such a difference. Created 40 institutions. You know, it was, they value her in Kenya. She's been given an honorary doctorate from the University wow. of Nairobi, and she um, she's now a Kenyan citizen, has been oh. since right after independence. Uh, she, she calls it her home. So your oldest sister, Olga, is she named for Granny then? Because you're Granny. Yeah, she okay. <laughs> they had a deal, in fact. My grandmother said she would name her daughter after her sister Hilda. And her sister Hilda 
named her daughter Olga. Oh, <laughs> sweet. But, Very sweet. So then the next generation, they were going to continue this. And the first generation, the, the eldest was called Olga again. And then Olga mm -hmm. was supposed to name her child Hilda. But, but she didn't marry. We have, we have no Hilda's. We have no Hilda. You know, Olga didn't get married. So she, she says, I'm married to God. Right. Um, so she didn't have, she, it stopped. But on the other side, they did call, uh, the Hilda called her daughter Olga. So that oh. you know, the idea did continue <laughs> on the other side. And it stopped. That's beautiful. <laughs> so now Penegro is the, the gypsy book. Right? That's the the uh, Gypsy Roma book, yes. Gypsy Roma book. Lugos Flute is the after book. What my mother was so good at was finding the, the right stories that tell you about the culture. To really the showcase culture. the culture. Right. To so honor this, the culture. She first did this for, illustrated a book about windmills. Then she did it for Irish books. Then the American culture and then the Canadian culture. Right. Then she went did the African culture and she did gypsies, Roma. She's a convert to Roman Catholicism, but she she's so she's very empathetic to other religions. So speaking of Dutch books, Day on Skates, um yeah. I read somewhere that she when your father when they got married, your father returned to the United States, but because of the depression uh, she was not granted access into the country because she didn't have a job. And so she had to fundraise for her passage in. I read that she wrote that book in order to make the journey into the United States to be reunited with your father. Correct. Correct. And he had to find a publisher. Oh. So he first, he went to Viking. Mm -hmm. They didn't make up their mind, but Harper Brothers... Uh, you know, they were the top publishers. Yeah. They all wanted the book, but they had to make up their mind because they had to. Uh, the key thing with Harper Brothers is that my mother's aunt was Edna St. Vincent Millay. Right. They published Edna St. Vincent Millay. Well, a preface, having that preface made the book an easy sell for them. Established it. And it won yeah. a Newbery Award. Uh, Bethlehem Books, they did a book. I have their book, yeah. yeah. I mean, they did a good job. Bethlehem Books did a good job on that one. It's really lovely. So do you have a favorite of your mother's books? Well, I mean, I if you had to read one over and over again? I love The Winged Watchman, uh, and I love The Barred House. Uh, but for younger children, I think A Little Old Bear is a terrific story. It, uh, it, it brings together the generations because it's about a bear who is in the attic and you know, he's blind, doesn't have any eyes, and he is swept up into the garbage and then he's pulled out of the garbage and the, the, the dog, the kids play with him. Uh, and, uh, you know, and the animals look him over and say, is this something I can eat? <laughs> There's nothing here to eat. So they leave him alone. And so he doesn't, nobody wants him. And the kids maybe use him as a football, but they get tired of that. They say, you're no fun. So they go <laughs> back over the fence, and he lands on a little old lady, and she says, tut, tut. She says, look where you're going. And then she sees it's a little teddy bear who 
And she says, oh my goodness, I'm sorry, I didn't realize you were blind. And she picks him up because he sees this bear is blind, no eyes. And she takes him home and she sews eyes on him. And now he can see and he's so excited to be able to see again. He looks out, sees all the little boys and girls outside. And he says, I wish I had a little boy and little girl who would take me in. Anyway, well, who walks in at that moment than her grandson? She says, I have a brand new teddy bear for you. And she gives him the brand new teddy bear. And he says, the brand new teddy bear is looking straight out. The grandson is looking around the room and he sees little old bear sitting on the side, uh, looking out the window. And little old bear is thinking, oh, what I loved that little boy. He would be so much fun to be. And little old boy walks towards him and says, I want that bear. And Yay. grandmother cries <laughs> and then little old bear leaps into his arms. <laughs> so, uh, but the grandmother says, don't you want the new bear? And the grandson says, no, this bear is much more interesting. Mm. His name is Jeremy. She had asked him what he was going to call the new bear. He said, I don't know. But this bear he knew was Jeremy. <laughs> That's a great story. Is that book sometimes called Jeremy Bear? That Jeremy Bear was a follow-on story about Jeremy. Oh. The original story is Little Old Bear, and that's the one I like. She did a few. Like Patsy and the Pup? Patsy and the Pup is another great story. I like it. Um, It's about a little girl who has to take the dog home. She finds the dog, follows her home from school, and she tells her parents, look what I found. And they said, no, you have to bring that dog home. And the postman comes by and says, I know who that dog belongs to. It's the lady that lives over the hill. And so a parent said, you have to bring the dog back. Mm-hmm. And so as all the adventures, her going Aww. through the woods, up the mountain, over the mountain, sure. bringing the dog back. Oh, <laughs> sweet. And she, of course, hates to do this. She wants this puppy. <laughs> yeah. And she can't. She has to bring the puppy home. And she does, and she goes to Mrs. Murphy over the hill. Mm. Uh, Again, uh, another Irish name. (laughs) Another Irish name. And Mrs. Murphy said, uh, so you brought this dog home? She said, yes, I'm sorry. I wish I could keep him, but you wish you could keep him? Sure, if this isn't the biggest nuisance. uh, You mean I can have him? (laughs) <laughs> yes, you can have uh, be good riddance. Aww. She does a little dance and <laughs> she's so excited. And she brings the dog home and said, Mrs. Murphy doesn't want this dog. Anyway, so the parents let her keep the dog because they Aww. said, You have shown such responsibility. Yes. By taking this dog home uh, to the its owner and now bringing it back safely. You are have earned your right to have the dog. Good parents. <laughs> so she had, she had, my mother had a way of getting to the heart of things. She does. I was just going to ask you if there's anything else that you want to tell us about your mom or her books that we didn't think to ask you. Well, um, I'm her executor and her, you know, 
I am always looking for ways to make it easier for her books to get out there. And I've been on the verge of having The Winged Watchman made into a movie. Mm-hmm. And also The Barred House was on the list for a miniseries. That these things break up because of, you know, the, when they had Brexit, the, the deals that were based on European-English cooperation broke down. Mm-hmm. So I'm always looking for ways that my mother's work can get to more people. Uh, and this is one way. And so I thank you. We thank you. <laughs> We'll tell you, because it'll be a good opportunity to tell our listeners at the same time, that we're going to air this interview at the end of August, and that is our Borrowed House Week. So that week, we're going to do a big splash with our review of the Borrowed House and how much we love it. This will air on Wednesday, and then on Friday, we are going to air a book club discussion that Diane and I are having with a few of our friends from BiblioGuides and Jill Morgan from Purple House Press. And we ladies are going to get together and talk about The Borrowed House and its themes and its details. And then we'll have a kit. So if people want to do a book club for their own friends and family or school group, we'll have our book club um, there as an example for them. I love your mom so much. She's one of my very favorite authors for children. And we just want to make sure that more and more people get to know her and love her as well. And we know The Borrowed House has some has some challenging themes in it. And yet we are really strong believers that this is a good book for young people to read. Maybe parents just need a little help understanding what's going on inside of the book. So thank you for being a part of our Borrowed House Week and coming and talking with us. We just love these stories about your mom. So thank you. Thank you.